Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Ian Garner. Ian is a historian and translator of Russian culture and war propaganda. Ian's forthcoming book, Stalingrad Lives, presents English translations of narrative wartime reporting on the Battle of Stalingrad during World War II, as well as commentary on the themes and implications of these narratives. The book is thought-provoking, and for me, it raised a lot of questions about how nations create narratives of identity, how stories shape our thinking and actions, and also, whilst not directly addressed in the book, I couldn't help thinking about how these narratives might reverberate throughout the decades and even up until today, with, of course, foremost in my mind, Russia's current war in Ukraine. Thanks for joining me today, Ian. Thank you for having me. This book is a really unique project that clearly sits on the back of hours, if not months, if not years of extensive research. You actually mentioned in the book that you read every single issue of every central Soviet paper from July 1942 to April 1943, which is pretty impressive. What motivated you to do all of that research and to write this book? Well, apart from a healthy dose of masochism, I was really interested in really, I suppose, the point that you raised in your introduction and that question of what is it that makes national identity narratives not necessarily always on the grand sweeping kind of scale that we might imagine when we think of the Soviet Union and World War II and Russia, we tend to think of these really sort of big monumental ideas. I'm really interested in people. What is it about especially Stalingrad, which is such, you know, it has a life of its own in Russian culture. What is it that can make a very ordinary person, even today, feel that that is something that they really strongly identify with. And, you know, you can tell from my voice that I, I grew up in England, even though I've lived in Canada for a long time now. And, you know, so when I was thinking about projects to choose for my PhD, and that's where this research came from, I was thinking about the Blitz, right? And I, I grew up in the northeast of London. And so, you know, you would always come across stories of the Blitz and sites of bombs that had fallen. And people still talk about the Blitz, even the early 90s, as if it was something that were happening now. And so this, this project was something that I thought would be a good kind of springboard for exploring how narrative construction might work because Stalingrad has such a strong pull. So I looked around at ways to do it and hit upon this idea of studying newspapers and I, I sort of half realized before I began that the Soviets had sent some fiction writers to the front and there were some big names. It took me four or five months to go and read through all the Soviet newspapers. This awful period in my life where I locked myself away in a dark room in a brutalist library at the University of Toronto. The first story that I found, a story by Vasily Grossman, the obviously extremely famous author of Life and Fate and Stalingrad, or for a just cause, depending on what you want to call it. It's never been reprinted in Russian. People just hadn't gone and looked at the newspaper and seen what's in there. So I really, within the first week of starting on the project, I realized, hold on, I might, might be onto something here. And then it took on a life of its own. And I realized there were all these other literary figures at the front and they were all working together and living together and producing this story. And you can see in the language, the language that these people were sitting there writing in the trenches, in the bunkers at Stalingrad is the language that you would recognize as being Stalingrad today. 
And I, I just can't think of another event in history that's been produced in, in quite that way with quite such speed and has gone on to have such a great effect. Mm-hmm. You obviously started off with some idea of the type of narratives that got wrapped around the Battle of Stalingrad, but actually going through all of those archives and reading all of that wartime reporting, did anything surprise you or was anything unexpected? I think the really surprising thing, and the thing that nobody, nobody ever believes me, even though you can look in the footnotes of the book and there's mountains of evidence for it, and I've talked to the families and I've gone and looked in the archives and looked at the notebooks that these people had at the front, is that so much of this is true. What these people were reporting, they had an extraordinary degree of freedom to basically go off to the front. So, I mean, the the story broadly is that June 1941, the Germans invade, there's chaos in Moscow, nobody knows what's going on. But the one thing that's really effective that the propaganda machine does, and the propagandists are just as unprepared as anybody else, there are already echoes in the present, right, is they basically form a new bureau to to make propaganda. They give this guy, David Ortenberg, charge of Red Star, one of the major newspapers, and basically say, go off, hire anyone you want to go and write for you. Just go off to the front, go write. Censorship actually diminished in the year or so leading up to Stalingrad. And so by the point we get to Stalingrad, there is Vasily Grossman, there is Konstantin Simonov, there is Ilya Ehrenburg, who are basically just given free reign to go off to the front, write whatever you want, you don't have to worry, you're not going to get in trouble, and almost nothing that they submit gets censored. And I have the statistics in the book, but it's extraordinary the numbers out of hundreds of articles they're submitting Almost nothing is rejected, and certainly nobody's packed off to the gulag. You can see in their notebooks at the front that they're writing down interviews live with these soldiers that they're talking to, and then you can see the lines appear in the newspaper versions. And then those lines are taken and reused later on by other people, so it sort of takes on a life of its own. And it's, again, quite unique in the Soviet era, I think, that there's just so much freedom. And almost as soon as the Soviets start winning at Stalingrad, when it becomes very obvious that the battle is won, the censorship starts coming back. Censorship not just in the battle on the Stalingrad front, but across the Eastern Front. Stalinism is back and people start to worry again. The Stalin sort of stakes a claim to being the architect of victory. It is interesting, though, you know, whilst you say a lot of what was written down was was true and there was really a lot of freedom around the way that information got presented, but nevertheless, as you're reading those stories, there are a lot of common narratives and themes which, you know, I don't know to what extent that was orchestrated or to what extent that naturally emerged out of some sense of patriotism or whatever it was. Could you talk a little bit about one or two of the general themes that you found most interesting my argument in the book is that a lot of what even these great authors, and I think in particular Simonov and Grossman, we can say are truly great authors, they struggle at the front and they describe in their diaries and their notebooks their trauma and their struggle to, to see what's happening. And there is some quite striking material that Simonov in particular wrote about, about how he, he just couldn't understand, even though he was a very experienced war reporter. He'd been doing this for two and a half years or so because he'd been at Halking Gold before the Great Patriotic War, quote unquote, had begun. And he couldn't quite comprehend what was happening at Stalingrad, the scale of the death and the disaster. What they did was they sort of 
plugged these first-hand witness accounts, these interviews with soldiers, these slightly new themes they were coming up with into bits and pieces of text that they were drawing from elsewhere, in particular socialist realist works for the 30s. And of course, there's an element of getting brownie points from the regime. You know, you're writing the right sort of thing. But they genuinely believed in this as well, right? They weren't doing it just because the authorities were watching. They drew on classical themes. There's lots of mythological stuff in here. And some of it would have gone way over the heads of their readers. There's stuff from like 18th century, 19th century Russian classics that it took me months and years to notice. So drawing on this material to sort of put reality back together it was as it was being cracked apart. And the overarching narrative of the battle then is all about this cracking and fragmenting and putting it back together. Because the narrative is really a quasi-religious narrative about death and sacrifice and resurrection. And what is really striking is the idea that Stalingrad, and you'll find these in the stories in the book, Stalingrad dies. Often there's some quite graphic descriptions of death and the idea of the city as being dead, murdered, burned, charred, its body pierced. There is something almost Homeric about it. The city dies and then it is gloriously resurrected and along with it, the nation. And of course, then when we, have, when we have these troops at the front, they die to make the sacrifice happen, right? And so it's, you know, it's, it's the passion of the Christ. And what I think is really significant about that narrative is the way that it puts reality back together, if we think about fragmentation and trauma, is that it, it doesn't just say that sacrifice is regrettable or unfortunate. It says that the sacrifice has to happen. And that really at the core of all of this, and when we think about identity and national myth and narrative, and when we think about the present and the way that the Putin regime draws on World War II, that is the core. Sacrifice and death has to happen. I would love to get your perspective on whether or how some of those themes might still resonate today. I'm wondering whether there's some kind of almost superficial version that still maybe propels certain ideas around the way in which Russia is carrying out war. Do you see reverberations or some kind of legacy of those themes or those narratives even today? Yes, absolutely. And in a sense, there's a reflection of the nature of the culture today and the way that you phrase the question. Because when we look at 1941, 1942, the difference with what's happening today is, of course, what was happening was very, very real. And when Simonov and Grossman and Ehrenberg are talking about if we don't win this battle, we are all going to die. It's true. It really was going to happen. And the, the sacrifice that the Soviets made, not just Russians, of course, is very important to point this out. And there, in fact, are a surprising number of non-Russian nationalities in the book. Although, of course, Russians are usually at the head of things. You know, a million people died at Stalingrad. They did turn the tide of the war. And you could argue that there were other battles that were as significant. You can argue that the tide of the war would have been turned somehow in the end. But there's something very real in here where if they hadn't won at Stalingrad, the war would have gone on for a lot longer. And so the fact that they won, especially as they looked like they were very much going to lose until mid to late October 1942. And three weeks later, they'd advanced dozens of kilometers and basically encircled the Germans. That makes this unusual. 
Today, though, the Putin regime, of course, is arguing that this is another World War II. It's another great patriotic war. And of course, they don't call it World War II or World War I. They call it patriotic wars. And the Russian phrase that is always attached to, to the war and has been for the last 10 years or so is, you know, in the West, we think of never again when we think of the war. It's that idea of a regrettable sacrifice. We wish that it hadn't been made. But the Russian phrase is, we can do it again. That is, we may need to do it again. We're ready to do it again. And I think the Russian state today has spent a lot of time and effort in trying to sell this narrative to the population. And there are a few narratives that they've actually managed to sell better to the population. People genuinely believe today that they are indebted to the generation of the grandfathers, as they call them, although, of course, now it's the great-grandfathers or the great-great-grandfathers. For those children you see dressed up in military parades and for Victory Day parades. But it, of course, it's not real. Russia is not being attacked. Russia is doing the attacking. And although you see lots of snippets and bits and pieces of the language that was invented at Stalingrad being deployed around Ukraine, this idea of no step backwards, no retreat. Today, when we're talking, the Ukrainians are on the brink of taking Kherson. And there is this movement, this evacuation of, well, kidnapping or deportation of civilians across the river, away from Kherson and into, into Russia. I guarantee if that evacuation happens, as it happened at Stalingrad, some of the language from Stalingrad will be summoned up and thrown into the mix to try and G people up and give them this sense that there is something emotional and meaningful in what's going on today. To what extent would those stories, that phrasing, the way in which those narratives were presented during the Battle of Stalingrad be familiar to a contemporary Russian person? So if you take Avrij Ivan in whatever, Chelyabinsk, will he know that the language of Stalingrad comes from these stories and comes from Grossman and Simonov at the front? Probably not. But this language phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, and image by image has been recycled so much over the years that average Ivan will know that language. He would look at the sentences, he would look at the phrasing and say, yes, that's Stalingrad to me. That, that's the way that it is. That's the truth of the matter, even if he can't tell you why. And the government, you know, has been putting money into this. There was this huge blockbuster film, 2013. They're always making blockbuster World War II films. But the only really smash hit World War II blockbuster they've had was this movie just called Stalingrad. You can see it in English subtitles, English dubbing. It's easily available. And it is a mashup of images and scenes and language from these stories. If you read the stories and then watch the movie, you'll say, yeah, I recognize where that comes from. I've seen that bit before. I know, I know that line. It's it's all there, you know, deployed in the language of 2010s action movies. But note for note, it's all there. Oftentimes, as people, we are compelled more by narratives and stories, you know, the meaning that we can make out of a situation. Given these types of stories that sort of seem to situate Russia as needing to make some kind of sacrifice in war in order to kind of triumph or gain victory, that it seems are being very much drawn upon as well in the current war in Ukraine. If those narratives are overlaid onto this situation in a way that is distorting the reality, but maybe does resonate with people, what can we learn from that about how this situation might evolve. War is inherently chaotic. 
War resists narrative. War resists our ability to describe what's happening. War creates trauma. And I've talked about that a little bit already, that when these authors went to the front, they found that they, they just didn't have the words to explain what was happening, as their readers also found that they didn't have the words. They didn't have the images. They didn't have the narratives to fit their experience into something. Their lives were fractured. Their identities were fractured. And what the Russian state today understands very, very well with its propaganda is that people will always be drawn to a story. Even if the story isn't real, as so much about today's Russia isn't real, it's fantasy. But the state has a huge hold over media and understands that it can create narrative out of nothingness. We see today in the way that the state occasionally has these periods of complete chaos where things are clearly out of control and you can turn on state television and you'll get one message one minute, one message the next minute, and you can log on to the same state media personalities, Telegram channel or VK channel, and they'll be saying a third thing all at the same time. They have these periods of chaos where they don't know how to respond, but at some point they'll choose a narrative and they will just make that narrative true and they will tell this fairy tale around it. It's this sort of what I call in the book projective, demiurgic approach to describing life and creating existence. And when you have an event like Stalingrad, it's extremely useful because people are genuinely traumatized and you need to rally your nation. You need to give them something to fight for so they don't feel like reality is just collapsing. And the Russian state will therefore today keep feeding its people narratives. And I don't think a simple clash with reality, as people sometimes talk about, will be enough to draw people away in Russia from this world of fairy tale narratives and into a recognition that the war is futile. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Ian. I really appreciate you going with me into these complex and a little bit tricky issue areas. It's been really fascinating and I recommend listeners check out your book, Stalingrad Lives. It's not only valuable just for reading that narrative wartime reporting is quite gripping, it will also make you think a lot about the nature of war and the way in which wartime contributes to the forming of national identity, national stories. Where can listeners go if they want to find out more? The best way to do it, it is available on Amazon. If you're in the States, Barnes & Noble is carrying it. Release date is in January. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate you being with me on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Gonka Varol for our theme music. Hey, listeners, Jessica here. A few listeners indicated that they felt that the theme music was a little too upbeat for the content of the podcast. So I'm trying out some new theme music. I'll be happy to hear what you think about that or anything else to do with the podcast, suggestions, comments, etc. You can DM me on Twitter at Jessica Genauer, J-E-S-S-I-C-A-G-E-N-A-U-E-R, or feel free to email me at my work email, jessica.genauer at flinders.edu.au. And thanks for listening.